Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of On Deck with Halen Belay, a tarot podcast about getting out of your deck and into your real life. Today is also going to be a bit of a different episode than what I'm guessing will be usual. I had planned for this to be the first episode that would go more or less along the outline, the scripts, the segments that I had in mind for this show, but the universe had other plans. And so this week, I'm actually going to be pulling back the curtain a little bit, sharing a really intimate look at my own practice. And honestly, not just at my own practice, but also at my personal life. I don't talk about my personal life very much on the internet for reasons that I think anyone who's been on the internet could probably guess. It's not always a super comfortable thing for me to share a lot about myself. And so I've given it some thought, really mold this over, and I actually am really excited to be sharing this glimpse of my life with you, even though it is unfortunately not a super positive or pleasant one. Basically, over this last weekend, my home was robbed while I was home. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. Everything is okay. No one was hurt and nothing really made was lost in terms of expenses or things that can't be replaced. So I'm okay. The cats are okay. The house is okay. Everything is okay. The only thing that's not okay is that I lost something extremely sentimental, a item that truly is completely irreplaceable. And in addition to the grief that I'm feeling over this extremely sentimental piece of jewelry, I'm also, you know, in the immediate aftermath of what was a really spooky experience, contending with some physiological, some body stuff, unsurprisingly, that's been pulled up by this experience. Now, again, I feel very lucky that I can say that even though it was a very scary thing to happen, in the grand scheme of things, I actually don't feel totally unsafe. And because I don't feel totally unsafe, this actually feels like a really powerful opportunity to talk about how we can use the tarot to cope with the immediate aftermath of trauma, of disruption, of things that, that knock us off our feet, and actually show you step by step what I would do, what I do actually do in circumstances like these to ground myself and to bring myself back to center. So today I'm going to be sharing with you all essentially an audio diary entry. I'm going to be coming to my own personal cards, pulling from my own personal deck, building a spread based on my own personal needs, and then just talking out loud to explain to you all what I'm seeing in those cards, what those things help me to identify about my real life, and what kind of action steps or next steps I feel like I can get from those cards to help me move forward and to progress. Before I actually get into the super personal part of the episode, though, I actually wanted to spend just a couple minutes here at the top talking a little bit about trauma and how trauma works to explain both my strategy for addressing this particular experience, but also some of the reasons why I feel comfortable using this particular experience as opposed to other traumas that I've experienced for talking about on the episode. Basically, there are certain things about this trauma 
that both from a risk assessment perspective, but also just from a personal comfort perspective, make it a lot less like physiologically threatening for me to share this story, as opposed to other stories that if I were to try and share them would be not just emotionally difficult, but physically difficult to get out as well. If you want to skip straight ahead to the reading itself, there will be a timestamp in the description of this episode so that you can go straight to the cards. Otherwise, I'd like to, as I said, begin with a little bit of a preamble about the nature of trauma and how our bodies experience trauma. If you've been in any one of my classes before, then you've heard me talk about the idea that all human bodies are clairvoyant, right? We have nervous systems that have evolved over time to keep us safe, keep us alive by noticing patterns and anticipating the future. And of course, our nervous systems are not perfect at this. We don't come born with a crystal ball that gives us 100% correct answers all of the time. But it does mean that on a subconscious level, in addition to the conscious level that we're aware of, our physical bodies, which are taking in so much information, way more sensory information than we could ever hope to consciously process, it, and intuition is our non-conscious parts of the body, right? Everything except for the part of your brain that you think with. All those other parts of the body gathering this information, determining how safe your environment is, and then sending that information to the conscious version of you in the form of sensations. So let's say you walk into a room and you immediately feel a sort of stomach dropping feeling, you feel prickly on the back of your neck, your shoulders round in, you notice yourself either getting tight and closing in around your core or looking around nervously. Let's say in that exact split second, somebody stops you and says, why do you feel those things? right? What's happening that's triggered those feelings? Well, in the first three seconds of walking into a room, you probably won't know unless there's something really obvious that you're already aware of as a trigger that's in that space. The odds are really high that the first time you walk into a room, the first time you meet somebody new, the first time you find yourself in a new environment, your body is going to react to things before you've cognitively processed them. Now, if you wait another three, five, 10 seconds and let yourself get a lay of the land of this thing you're experiencing, then you can start to work backwards and look at, okay, well, I'm now that I'm actually seeing what's in this room and I'm feeling what I'm feeling, I can start to work backwards and figure out what in this room is triggering those feelings. What is it that is making me feel this way? Is it that there's someone in this room who looks like someone I've had a bad experience with before? Is it because there's something in this room that reminds me of other environments or experiences that I've had where I was not safe? Is there something ambiently in the environment, maybe a smell that I find unpleasant, something that I'm allergic to, even just a type of lighting or other sensory input that is setting me on edge? It takes a little bit of time for our conscious minds to actually get in on that action and get to make some of those determinations. So then when we talk about trauma, a lot of times people talk about trauma as a narrative concept, as a, something that you use to talk about events and arrange them in time. So trauma is a thing that happens to somebody at a certain point. They were one way before the trauma happened, and then after the trauma happened, they're a different way. That's, I would say, the most common kind of mainstream understanding of what we mean when we talk about trauma. But the reality is, and any trauma worker could tell this, a lot of trauma survivors could tell you this, trauma is not as simple as a knife that goes through our lifeline and just cuts it in half and now there's we've got to figure something out with the pieces. That absolutely can be some people's experience of trauma. But when we're talking at the broadest sense, the most kind of 
top level idea of what trauma means, what we're actually talking about when we discuss having a traumatized body or a traumatized nervous system, what we're talking about is an experience that happens in your nervous system. It's a thing that, that any human being's nervous system can experience. And it's what happens to our nervous system when we have an experience in the world that is overwhelming and that we experience as catastrophic. So to put it another way, trauma is what happens when our nervous system perceives itself to have failed at its job, right? Our nervous system's job is anticipating the future in order to keep us safe, first and foremost, and also to help us experience positive things. But overwhelmingly, the purpose of our intuition is to keep us safe. If you've ever heard of negativity bias in a psychology class, that's what negativity bias is. Our nervous systems are predisposed to emphasize things that are dangerous and could hurt us over things that are pleasant and could help us because from its perspective, from the nervous system perspective, its job is to keep us alive. And while bringing us closer to good things like abundant food and intimate relationships, those things definitely help us to stay alive, help us to enjoy life. But the most important thing that's going to help us to stay alive and to keep living is to avoid danger. So that's what our nervous system is primarily concerned with. I think this expanded view of what trauma is can really help us to understand why people are the way that they are, why we are the way that we are, and why certain events might hit us differently from how they hit other people, or maybe different events hit us differently at different times of our lives. I have absolutely had the experience personally and also conversations with other people who identify as survivors of trauma or trauma-impacted people who will say something like, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to me isn't the thing that I'm the most stuck on, right? The most violent or threatening or dangerous situation that I was in is not actually the thing that feels stuck in my body. It's not the thing that keeps me up at night. The thing that's really bothering me, really torturing me mentally, psychologically, is not necessarily the thing that, if you were going to make a list of intensity, that's gonna be the most intense thing. This is one of the reasons why, for many people, it can be really difficult to even acknowledge or address something as traumatic if it doesn't seem to have met a certain threshold of violence or harm. Again, it's something you see very commonly with people who experience non-physical forms of abuse in childhood, especially things like emotional neglect. People have a very difficult time understanding things like being ignored by a parent who's mad at you as traumatic. But when we think about, again, this expanded understanding of what trauma is, and then think about the nervous system of a child who is developing, who's still learning a lot about what it is to be safe, what it is to be loved, how to stay in the group, how to get your needs met, that having a primary caregiver, a trusted adult, treat them in a way that is cruel and unkind and painful, then that child's nervous system is going to experience that negative interaction as failure. Right? A child's nervous system craves, above all else, to be close to other people, especially trusted adults and caregivers, because a child's nervous system is aware that children are very vulnerable. They have a strong need for these relationships with caregivers because from an evolutionary perspective, if a child is rejected by the adults around it, that child will most likely die. And this is one of the key reasons why our nervous systems, our bodies are so bad at telling the difference between social isolation and death. 
psychologically speaking, our, our anxieties around being socially isolated and our anxieties around dying are deeply, deeply interlinked. And so that's why sometimes people will be triggered, they'll experience some kind of traumatic trigger and have this overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, I'm going to die. I feel like this is the end of the road for me. And the thing that was triggered, the thing that, that brought this up was some kind of social interaction, some kind of interpersonal interaction that was not violent. That people will have this experience and then think there's something wrong with them, think that they're being dysfunctional in some way because they're experiencing such a strong reaction, have such a strong lasting reaction to something that did not physically harm them. And the reality is, right, as we're discussing, something does not have to be physically harmful for your body to experience it as a failure to keep yourself safe, as something that you've done wrong, something that you want to avoid doing in the future because something happened and the way you responded to it wasn't the right way to respond. Going back to that example of a parent giving the silent treatment, if the silent treatment comes because a child has expressed an emotional need and they get silent treatment, then the learning that happens is the nervous system is going to say, okay, you asked for help because you needed help. And what happened was you experienced rejection. So I see now that I failed. It was a failure on my part to tell you to ask for help. That was a bad impulse. And in the future, we're going to try other strategies to try and get your needs met. Slash, we will compulsively repeat this strategy in situations where we can try and manipulate a situation to make it actually safe. Now, I'm sure there will be future episodes where I talk a lot more in depth about the experience of childhood trauma, trauma during the developmental years, trauma that has to do with our caregivers and our primary parental figures. But today, that's actually not the kind of trauma that I want to talk about. Today, I want to talk about the kinds of traumatic experiences that we have as adults that happen fairly frequently, more or less frequently, depending on your life, your identity, the roles that you hold. But these traumas that we might not, you know, if we were writing the history of our lives, if we were writing our memoirs, that we might not name as formative traumas or really key traumas or even necessarily really big traumas in our life, but that still meet the threshold for being traumatic. They still have a lasting impact on our nervous system because our nervous system has internalized that experience as a failure and is really preoccupied with figuring out, okay, I failed, how do I make sure I don't fail again? So if the goal is to prevent future failures, so your nervous system is trying its best to learn how to avoid the situation in the future. So this brings me to the break-in that I mentioned, which happened a few days ago. And I honestly hesitate to call it a break-in even because it happened partially due to something that was completely avoidable and completely my fault. Just failing to lock a door when I could have easily locked the door and then finding myself in a situation where there's somebody in my home without my knowledge taking my stuff. Now, the immediate event was absolutely extremely stressful. I had no idea if the person was still in my home when I realized that this had happened. I had no idea what their intentions were, but it quickly became clear that this person was opportunistically mulling around the neighborhood. I live not very far from the college campus. It's move-in weekend. This person was probably trying doors, hoping people weren't home or that they could managed to grab a few things and get away without too much trouble. It was the middle of the day. 
Ultimately, the only things that were stolen were a tray that my roommate made that we used to hold our laundry quarters, and a box that was right by the door of my bedroom that had, um, it's like a tackle box that had all of my jewelry in it. Every piece of jewelry that I've ever owned for my entire life was in this big tackle box because I was trying really hard to be organized which then of course made it easy for this person to just pick up the whole thing and leave with it. So let that be a lesson to you about being organized. It actually is not always a net positive. But as far as, you know, robberies, home invasion situations go, it was a extremely low-key one, if any type of event can be called low-key like that. As soon as I made noise and it was clear that I was home, they ran away. Now, luckily, I have only experienced something like this once, one other time. Now, luckily, I've only experienced something like this one other time in my life when I was a child and our home was broken into while I was at school. Our VHS player was stolen, which at the time had my favorite VHS in it. I think it was like Lady and the Tramp 2, something like that. And I didn't know anything had happened, obviously, until my mom came to pick me up from school and I saw how upset she was and she explained to me what had happened while I was at school and while she was at work. Now, even though in that situation, I was not home when the robbery happened, I was never in any kind of danger, that event feels way more heavy in my memory, feels like way more of a trauma in my memory than this event that happened just a few days ago. Why is that? Well, there are four basic criteria, four basic questions for determining how impactful a certain trauma is probably going to be for somebody. The first question is, was it unexpected? Like, was the thing that happened unexpected? Meaning, did it happen by surprise? Was there any lead up or any warning to it happening? Is there any kind of awareness that it could happen? And in this case, the answer was, yes, there was some awareness of this happening. I had just had a friend over who had left the house and walked themselves out. And I had thought in my head, you know, I probably should just walk them out and lock the door behind them. But I was in the middle of something. I figured, hey, I can leave the door unlocked for five, 10 minutes, and then I'll go lock the door when I walk over to that side of the house. No big deal. So even though I wasn't expecting someone to break into my home, the thought had occurred to me. I was aware there was some possible risk and in that moment made a decision to not really take that risk super seriously. The second question is, was I prepared? Now, the question about being prepared and the question about it being expected are a little bit different. Whether or not the situation was expected has to do with how possible I thought that experience might be. Was it in the realm of possibility that it could happen? Was I prepared? is less about whether or not I thought it was possible to happen, but whether or not I had tools available to me easily at the ready if something did happen. So in this case, was I prepared? Well, yes and no. Uh, no, I wasn't prepared. I was not wearing clothes that I would like to encounter a burglar in. I was not near anything in my home that could have been used as self-defense weapon. And the first time that I thought I heard somebody at my door, I completely discounted it. I did not, you know, take that extra preparatory step of seeing what was going on. But I did have my phone with me and, but I did have my phone with me. And I'm a person who has 
uh, my voice assistant turned on my phone specifically because of emergency situations. I have a brain that likes to go over all the possible situations that could happen, all the dangers that could go on, and knowing that I can voice activate my phone to call somebody to come help me is something that really helps me to feel secure, feel more safe and more prepared. So in this circumstance, even though I wasn't prepared fully for what was happening, I did have my phone with me. I felt really secure and confident that I would be able to call for help. And in fact, that's exactly what I did. Before I went to the part of the house where I thought I had heard somebody, I called the friend who had just left my house, asked just to confirm, like, you, def you definitely didn't come back, right? Like, I'm not hearing you. And that person stayed on the phone with me on speaker while I checked the rooms of my house to make sure this person wasn't here. And was able to come and pick me up once I determined that there was nobody here to take me to another place where I would feel safer. And it's actually that ending of the story that's maybe the most important consideration of how people will experience something, whether or not it will be experienced as traumatic and impactful, is the last two questions on our list, which are, did I lose control and did anyone help? So did I lose control means was I able to take actions that changed my circumstances or were my actions not changing my circumstances, like doing things that wasn't helping or did I lose my ability to feel like I was making choices in my actions? Did I lose control as in, was I doing something that wasn't helping or was I not able to do anything or not able to do the useful thing because I was overwhelmed or I was flooded? In this situation, I passed that question with all flying colors, right? Thinking back on the step-by-step -step of what happened in the moment of crisis, I was able to think clearly about what was happening make some really quick decisions about what would be the safest and most appropriate step forward. And then I was able to execute on those plans and I was able to stay safe. Remember, if we're talking about our nervous systems being insecure or lacking confidence as a reason why we have these traumatic leftovers and residuals, having an experience where, okay, yes, something scary happened, but I feel really confident that I handled it in the most appropriate way and that the way that I handled it led to the best possible outcome, that goes a really long way towards reassuring your nervous system, hey, even if something this scary does happen again in the future, you probably are going to be able to handle it. That last piece, did anyone help, is also incredibly, incredibly important. And this is one that applies not just to the moment of crisis itself, but to the immediate aftermath of it. So let's say I'm in a situation where nobody's able to help me in the immediate moment where crisis is happening or where I'm at risk or experiencing harm. But then the first person that I go to tell is able to support me and to help me. Or maybe I am in an environment where somebody else can see either what's happening or see that there's something wrong with me, that I look upset, and is able to check in and offer support. Again, our nervous systems are thinking about whether or not we can feel safe and comfortable living in the world knowing that we're going to be taken care of. And even if all of the other answers to those questions are negative, Right? Even if the thing that happened was totally unexpected, we were totally unprepared, we totally lost control in the situation, it was completely overwhelming, but somebody helped. That can be so transformative for our bodies on a psychological, physiological level for being able to feel safe and feel comforted 
knowing that we can co-regulate with another person, knowing that there are other people, safe people, who are going to help us when we need help. It sounds super simple and super basic, but if you've ever been in a situation where people didn't help, you know firsthand exactly how devastating it can be to be in a situation where you're experiencing harm and people aren't helping you. I've heard many people share with me that actually it was the people that they told not helping them that was the di most difficult to get over, was the most difficult to digest and to process about whatever their particular traumatic experience had been. It wasn't so much the thing that had happened itself, it was the realization or the experience that they had in the immediate aftermath of, okay, if this thing happens again, I'm on my own. Which is, of course, a very distressing feeling to have when we feel unsafe and insecure and like we need support. So this is really the reason why I feel comfortable sharing this story with you and also sharing this reading with you. Because even though this experience was traumatic, according to the most bare-bones definitions of the term, when it comes to actually understanding and processing my own experience, even though this was a dangerous situation where something really bad could have happened, I have enough safety cues that I actually don't feel overwhelmed or threatened by the possibility of this happening again. I'm not hypervigilant about my home being broken into. I don't feel like it's disturbing my sleep or my peace of mind when I'm at home. Most of the emotional aftermath that I'm feeling is the frustration and the heartbreak of losing a very, very sentimental piece of jewelry that was in that box. The frustration of knowing that there was something that I could have done differently, that I could have made different choices. And that's actually been a running theme in the last few days, is not just going over all the different choices that I could have made. It's less about the concern of how do I keep that from happening again, and actually the thing I find myself more stuck on is thinking about all the different things that have, could have happened days ago, weeks ago, to not have those earrings be lost, to not have that sentimental piece be lost. They were given to me as a gift for my birthday, which was just a few weeks ago, and they were gifted to me in a very nice box wrapped up in a very nice, also sentimental handkerchief that I then kept in my bag for probably a week and finally decided to put in my jewelry box. I was like, you know, I should keep my things organized, I should keep them all in one place. I folded them up in a little napkin and put them in the jewelry box and now they're gone. And the person who gifted them to me shared that he had been thinking about giving them to me, not for my birthday, but for our anniversary, which is in a few more weeks and decided to give it to my for my birthday and has been experiencing his own frustration that you know if only i had given it to you later then this thing wouldn't have happened so regret is definitely a big theme of what i've been feeling since this event happened but fear is not and that's why i feel comfortable sharing this experience with y'all and why i feel like this is a safe experience that i can work through in a tarot reading i'm not super afraid that something is going to come up that i'm not comfortable sharing and in fact, I think it might be very useful to look at this experience and again, as I said at the top of the show, to talk about some of the things that I do actually do in times like these to take care of myself and use the cards to direct my growth and my healing. So that actually brings us to the reading itself. I'm gonna go ahead and move myself over to my little tarot area and just walk you through the steps of what I'm going to do for this reading. 
The first step is for me to take the card that is currently out of my tarot deck and slip it back in. I have a habit and a ritual of drawing a single card to keep out of the deck in between readings that I keep in a display place where I can see it every morning and use it as a regular reminder, something that I want to think of, be mindful of, meditate on until whatever time is that I do my next reading. Funnily enough, the card that I currently have out of my deck is the Eight of Swords. And the Eight of Swords is a card that's all about restrictions and boundaries and limitations and things that we can't do. I think one way of thinking about this card is actually thinking about the ways that those kinds of obligations and restrictions can be protective for us. Like when I first pulled this card the last time that I did a reading for myself, at that point, I had interpreted it as about being about my need for rest, that basically this Eight of Swords was telling me, hey, you should think of yourself as less powerful, think of yourself as having more restrictions, because actually those restrictions and those boundaries help you to protect yourself. They help keep you safe from burnout or from exploitation or for overextension. So, you know, a few weeks ago or whenever it was that I pulled this card, that's really what I've been mulling over lately is how do I create more rules, more obligations, more boundaries for myself that actually do protect and nurture my well-being. So now, as I'm getting ready to slip this card back into the deck, I'm thinking again about some of the ways that I feel I've been successful in thinking about how this card applies to my emotional life or my psychological well-being, but realizing that there's actually some really practical and material ways that inhabiting this card might have helped me to avoid this situation. Having the impulse of, well, you know, my friend's leaving, the door's gonna be unlocked, but I can leave a door unlocked for 10, 15 minutes. It's not a big deal. It's not like something's gonna happen in 15 minutes. I can just totally, I can, it'll be fine. In actuality, if I had come at it with this Eight of Swords perspective of, no, you don't have the option of not locking the door. You have an obligation, you have a responsibility, you have a restriction being placed on you, which is you are restricted from not thinking about locking your door. Even though words like restriction and limitation might have negative connotations to them in our expansionist, capitalist vocabulary, in reality, those are actually really useful and helpful things to have, to think of ourselves as not completely strong enough to handle everything so that we're able to put up scaffolding around the things that need that support or that are more vulnerable to that kind of damage. So I'm slipping this Eight of Swords back into my deck, and as I'm holding my deck in my hand, playing with the cards, shuffling them around a little bit, I'm going to start off my practice by centering myself, doing a little bit of deep breathing. I'm going to spare you listening to me breathing, but I am going to take a moment off mic to sit with the cards in my hand with my left hand underneath the cards and my right hand on top of the cards. And I will take five deep breaths, inhales and exhales, as I imagine putting my energy and my focus and my attention into the deck. This process is important spiritually, energetically for getting the deck ready for a pull, but it's also really important for me as a person to take this time to settle my body and mind before I try to engage in a form of really deep introspection. Okay, so I have shuffled my cards, I've charged my cards, and actually while I was 
charging my cards and getting them ready for the reading, there was one card in particular that was sticking out of the deck, seemed to be asserting itself very strongly. So actually, instead of starting off by doing a spread, I'm going to start off by reading what this first card is and seeing if that actually gives us some insight and some perspective into how to shape my question. So when I was sitting down to the cards, what was on my mind was, you know, this thing happened, it was really stressful, I feel like it kind of destabilized me and threw me off, and I want to know how should I move forward, is there anything I'm missing as far as my reaction to it, is there anything that I need that maybe I'm not realizing or recognizing that I need. So that was my sort of first impulse, what to ask, and the card that jumped out of the deck is the Queen of Swords which whew, is definitely a reading. So the Queen of Swords, for those of you who are not familiar with this figure, as we talked about last week, swords are all about our intellect, they're about our thoughts, our ideas, our communication, our plans, our strategies, and our a very sort of black and white rational way of thinking. Now when we look at the court cards, last time we talked about how the page is the child of the court cards. The king and the queen are representations of the Divine Feminine, Divine Masculine. And I don't have time to talk in depth today about gender in the tarot. So for now, suffice to say that when I say that queens are feminine, what I mean is that they're about our internal life. They're about our interiority. So we can look at this Queen of Swords and interpret this as a mastery over our internal thoughts, ideas, feelings, strategies, plans, etc. Now, while that may be a very validating card for someone to see, like, you know, they're asking, am I missing anything? They get the Queen of Swords. They might be thinking for them, oh, this, what this card gives me is I'm exactly on the right track. But I have a slightly different relationship with this card. This card throughout my tarot practice has had a certain flavor to me that I don't necessarily hear people talking about as like a universal aspect of this card, but that for me ends up being very true when it's showing up for me in my readings. And that flavor is that to me, the Queen of Swords, the idea of like our internal realm being ruled by rationality, that immediately gives me bad vibes. Immediately what that brings up to mind for me is someone who is being super controlled in their interior world, not because they don't have feelings, but because they are so scared of the overwhelming power of those feelings. And this is a flavor that occurs to me, obviously, because it's, a, it's an experience that I can connect to and empathize with. When I think about my own personal life, in the times of my own personal life where I have been the most kind of rigid in my thinking, a lot of times that's been because that rigidity was a way to desperately try and keep myself from feeling the things that I was feeling about that situation. So looking at this card, on the one hand, I do feel reassured and comforted that this Queen of Swords came out upright. I think for what that, for me, I think what that means is that this Queen of Swords is a reflection and an indication of what I said earlier about feeling like I did handle the situation as best as I could possibly handle the situation when it happened. I do feel good about that internal problem-solving plan-making. But because of my relationship with this card, there's other cards in the deck that could have given me the message that I handled something competently or that I was able to protect myself. But this specific card 
actually makes me suspect, given that my question was, is there anything I'm missing? I'm suspecting that there is some kind of emotional disturbance, something that actually does feel dislodged or threatened by this experience that's not really directly the experience itself. That my relationship to the experience as it happened is, okay, I feel pretty good about how it was handled. But this Queen of Swords makes me think, okay, what is it emotionally, more vulnerably, that I'm experiencing that this kind of hyper-competence is trying to interrupt, it's trying to intervene on and keep me from having to feel that vulnerability. So with that in mind, as I start to think about what kind of spread I'd like to pull, what kind of actual reading I'd like to do, and what my question is, I think that kind of changes the direction of my question from is there something I'm missing to what specifically am I missing? What is the inner interior emotional stuff that isn't being addressed or that's being covered for or shielded by responding to the event itself in a way that feels competent and controlled? So I think the spread that I'm going to do is going to really focus on this idea of hidden depths. I'm going to pull one card to represent me and the energy I'm holding on to, what's most present for me. I'm going to draw a card to represent what the hidden depths are, what happened in the past that's influencing this current moment. And then I'm going to draw another card representing essentially what the best case scenario is moving forward. What is the thing that I can stretch towards or reach towards to help me navigate the situation in the most balanced way possible to address things that aren't being balanced at this current moment. So I'm going to go ahead and draw those three cards with my right hand. So the three cards that I've pulled, I have the Seven of Cups representing me and what I'm holding on to. I have the Magician, which is called the Master in my deck as the thing from the past that's negatively influencing this current moment. And I have the Demon as the card representing growth or what I should orient, orient myself towards moving forward. So now that I have pulled my three cards, I've gotten a sense for what they are, where they are, what thing they refer to. I'm now going to take a moment to mull over each one of these cards independently. Normally when I do tarot readings like this, I will have a tarot journal that I use next to me. So I would write down, the, I would draw the spread, I'd write down what card came out in each placement, and then I would take some time for each card to jot down not just what that card means, but the specific associations that I have with that card as it relates to this question. What are the things about this card that seem most important or are standing out the most to me right now? So when I look at the Seven of Cups and think about, okay, what are the things that stand out to me the most right now about what the Seven of Cups represents that I feel really connected to, it's really hard for me to see this Seven of Cups as being anything other than the very sentimental pair of earrings that was lost. Or rather, my relationship to and my attachment to this very sentimental piece of jewelry. Seven of Cups is about wanting and longing for things that we might never get. It's about desire and fantasizing that's valuable purely because the desire exists. You know, the example I give all the time for the Seven of Cups is when somebody asks you if you had a million dollars or a billion dollars, what would you do with it? The purpose of that question isn't so that you can have a budget ready when you actually are a billionaire. The purpose of that question is because the answer you give is going to reveal something about you. The answer you give will reveal something about your desires, about your values, about your perspectives. 
And so the seven of cups is really the, what would you do if you had a billion dollars question? It's a desire and a longing that exists specifically to never be fulfilled. It's instead our orientation towards that thing or our imagination of that thing that makes it useful. And in this particular situation, when I think about my, if you had a billion dollars question, I've had the thought many times in the last few days and even jokingly said to friends a couple of times, God, I wish if I had, if I had caught this guy running out of my apartment, I would have just said, can I have those earrings take the rest? These were like handmade earrings made from seashells on a trip that my partner and I took where I visited the ocean and swam in the ocean for the first time. And he took some of the shells we collected, made them into very beautiful bespoke pieces that are beautiful, but are probably not going to be worth very much to anyone who's not me. If I put myself in the mind of a thief, that's not what you came here to steal, right? That's not what you came here for, is these extremely sentimental earrings. And in my dream of dreams, I would simply tell this person, hey, take all my shit. I really could care less. It's stuff. Stuff is replaceable. Some great pieces in there, but I will literally be fine without them. But this one very sentimental piece is something I would I didn't have to give up. And when I look at the thing from the past, the second card, the card that's representing something that's negatively impacting the situation is the master, the magician, which is a card about manifestation, meaning taking the internal, our internal thoughts and feelings and making them real in the external world. However, the magician is also a card that has a lot of associations with power in a kind of hierarchical sense. And that's especially true in my deck where the title of the card is the master and the imagery of the card is of a older white man looking directly into it's a painting that's not a camera but they're looking into camera if it was a camera and it has this very serious look on his face when i look at this card i do have the association of manifestation and control that part of what's happening here is a desire for control or a frustration about not having control that is frustrating and that that frustration is part of what's driving this longing and this yearning in a way that might not actually be helping me. But I actually have a feeling that this card also represents a figure of sort of parental judgment. And I say this not only because the imagery of this card has all of these icons of control and mastery, but specifically because my version of this card with its iconography is really evocative of the idea of a patriarch. And in my own personal life, I was raised by a single mom. But when I think about patriarch in the domestic sense, when I think about the idea of a authoritarian kind of person in the home who is not necessarily there for emotional intimacy so much as they are there for maintaining control over the environment, the first association that I have with this card in this context, I wouldn't say in general that this card represents my mother, but I think in this particular spread, what this card represents to me is my mother. Or more broadly, I think a lot of parental figures or a lot of adults, trusted adult figures that I had in my life who did have a more authoritarian and kind of dour way of interacting with me, of addressing me, and specifically thinking about this as it relates to gifts and gift giving. That there is a lot of attachment I think I have to the idea of control and ownership and responsibility around gifts that are given to me 
That's almost the way I talk to myself when I break or lose something that I was given as a gift is that the master voice. It's that authoritative, domineering kind of voice that I associate with having done something wrong as a kid. So seeing the master here is already pretty illuminating and helps me put a finger on, again, the thing that has been stuck in my mind for the last few days, which is this pair of earrings and how devastated I am by losing this pair of earrings. The last card that I pulled about what can I hope to grow from or what can I stretch towards from the situation is the demon. And guys, I just fucking love tarot. The tarot is so cool because what the demon represents is, among other things, it represents desire. It represents things that we and that tempt us so much that we are almost held in thrall by those things. If the master is about taking control, the demon is about the things that we lose control to. Even more significantly, and I'll post a picture of this actually on the website so you guys can see. I hadn't been planning to, but I gotta show you. The way that this card looks in terms of the imagery. So in the middle is a Seven of Cups, which is depicted by a person looking up and to the right as birds are flying overhead. At the bottom, there is the master who is staring out to camera. It's man's face. And then the iconography for the demon is a red-faced demon that is facing directly towards the figure in the middle, facing towards the Seven of Cups. So what that ends up creating in terms of a visual language is I'm seeing this Seven of Cups representing my desire, my longing, my yearning, and that figure has its back turned on the master and is looking up towards the demon with a gesture that almost looks like worship or supplication, surrender. And when I look at this and think about what that means, what that represents, I think it's pretty clear to me and pretty obvious, even based on what I was saying before about what the Seven of Cups represents, that what the demon is here to remind me of is that the purpose of this pain and this longing is not to go get those earrings back. I think that this spread really feels like a permission and a release to worry less about getting those earrings back or fixing the problem. I've been feeling so much guilt and responsibility towards my partner who made the earrings because they were lost. And that feels like an unfair thing that happened to him in addition to a thing that happened to me. But I think this demon card up here and the sort of interaction it's having with the Seven of Cups underneath it is essentially the cards communicating to me and my own intuition communicating to me that the discomfort of longing for those earrings and wanting something so badly that I can't have, that discomfort and that yearning and that desire is the point. I'm a pleasure witch. I spend so much time thinking about and meditating on and mulling over the ways that pleasure does and doesn't show up in my life, the ways that I experience pleasure, the purpose of pleasure, the point of pleasure. And this demon card is, I think, a again, pretty clear reminder that in this circumstance, there's actually a lot of pleasure to be found in missing this thing that I miss. Because in missing this thing that I miss, what I'm experiencing is all of the love and the sentiment that went into the creation of that gift, that went into my initial appreciation of that gift, right? I'm taking all of those things and just absolutely soaking 
in them. The reason why it was so devastating to lose these earrings in particular is because they were so special. And they were so special not because of anything intrinsic about them, but because they were made from seashells that I collected on the beach with somebody I love who helped me feel safe and comfortable enough to swim in the ocean for the first time. And honestly, an experience that was so amazing that for weeks after we got back, at least once every couple of days, if not once a day, I would turn to my partner and say, remember when we swam in the ocean? And that was sort of the, the inspiration that he had for turning them into earrings so that we could always remember the time that we swam in the ocean. So the heartbreak and the devastation that I'm feeling about losing these items and not having them anymore, as sad as that is, it's also honestly really exciting for me to have had so much sentiment wrapped up in these items is indicative of how much love and sentiment I've been lucky enough to experience in my life that was sort of bottled in these objects. And so the suffering that I'm experiencing is actually represented by the demon in this spread. The suffering is actually a positive, beneficial thing. And I say this not to gaslight myself into not being sad, but as a reminder that when I am feeling sad, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not doing something wrong by feeling sad. The world's not ending. It's not a catastrophe. Actually, what's happening is I am experiencing the love that was in those items and the heartbreak of having something happen in the world that I can't fix. And going back to that idea of the master, something happened and it's super frustrating that I can't just go get those earrings back. I can't go find the person who took my stuff and take my stuff back. And what this spread is communicating is, yeah, you don't need to take those things back. What you need is to let yourself really feel how much you want those things to be back and to develop a different relationship to the pleasure that those things brought you now in the absence of those physical things. And this feels very true for me. You know, while I wouldn't personally call myself a Buddhist, I have spent a lot of time practicing Buddhist styles of meditation, learning about Buddhist philosophy, I've spent some time in a Buddhist monastery. And so the, the first sort of impulse that I had when these things were lost was to go straight to, it's just stuff everything's impermanent. This is a great opportunity for me to practice letting go of material goods and material things. Of course, now looking at this spread, I realize that my desire to have total non-attachment from these objects has also been making me feel a little bit guilty whenever I do feel that heartbreak. Feeling like there's something wrong with me for being sad about a situation that could have been so much worse. And don't get me wrong, I am overwhelmingly so grateful that the person who took my stuff wasn't interested in harming me or harming my cats. Like one of the first things that I said to the person who came to pick me up was, if this person is hard up enough to steal laundry quarters, then honestly, Godspeed. I'm very upset that these earrings are gone. But like I said, if I had caught this person in the act outside of this one irreplaceable, very sentimental set of earrings, there's nothing in that big box of jewelry that I care about more than I care about the well-being of other people. And I don't say that to be like, oh, yes, if you have something taken from you, you should just turn the other cheek. But to say that for me personally, right, 
one of the first things that I felt when I realized what had been taken was, wow, I am incredibly grateful that I am in a position where my house was robbed and the only real negative consequence is that I won't be able to accessorize the way that I usually like to accessorize. That's so all in all, looking at this three card spread and thinking about what my experience has been up until now, what my experience probably will continue to be in the future, I'm taking this spread as an invitation to spend more time with my longing and my yearning and to remember that I should and can recontextualize my yearning into being part of my pleasure practice. That part of the pain of missing these objects is wrapped up in the pleasure that those objects initially brought me. And so I think I do want to spend a little bit more time really reflecting on what those earrings meant to me. But also one of the things that I am also thinking about is that the devil, the demon, is representative of things that we want so much that we will do really difficult things to get them. It's a card that's associated with, for example, people who overwork. Like our desire for success or our desire for recognition drives us to do things that might be painful for us even because of the thing that we desire so badly. And I think in this circumstance, what the demon represents is my desire to have these objects back, which will probably not be fulfilled, meshed with the creativity of how do I get my, my need filled? How do I achieve this desire when the actual thing that I want is out of reach? So if I was doing this reading, now if I was doing this reading by myself, I would take some time actually right now to just do that journaling in my tarot journal or in my diary journal, wherever it felt most appropriate to put that reflection. I would just take some time to write down what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what's coming up for me. And then there's always slightly different variations on how I close out my practice. But I think for today, just because of how strongly I feel connected to the demon card, instead of pulling an additional card, to go on my altar and be displayed, I'm actually going to take this demon card from this spread and make this the card that I keep with me until the next time that I pull cards as my reminder and my indication for what I'd like to prioritize and what I'd like to grow towards in the next few weeks or however long it takes for me to come back to my personal day. I, I don't want to indulge in the queen of swords side of me that wants to lean into the master and just control and lock down the situation so I can deal with it as rationally as possible. I want to lean into my seven of cups and the demon energy specifically. I want to lean into my desire, into my longing, into my yearning, and to see what kind of creativity might actually be born from that longing and from that yearning? What kinds of things could be born out from that? That brings us now to the end of episode two of On Deck. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I apologize if this week's audio is a little bit rougher than usual. As you all heard me just talking about, it has been a hell of a week. Thank you again for coming on this journey with me, joining me for this experiment. And next week, hopefully, I will be able to bring you regularly programmed episode as intended. If you haven't had the chance to send in your tarot question or feedback or comment or whatever it is that you'd like to send, make sure you check out the website so that you can find that 
submission form and have your question read out on a future episode. To learn more about the show and to find more information about me and my work, please visit ondeck.halen.co. The best way to learn more about what I'm working on and to get updates on upcoming offers is to follow me on Instagram, halen.co, or to join my newsletter, which again, you can find the information for at ondeck.halen.co. If you're enjoying the show so far, consider telling a friend to check it out. And if you're not already subscribed, don't forget to subscribe so that you can get the next episode of the podcast delivered directly to your feed next Tuesday. I can't wait to talk to you all again then, and I'll see you next week.